0: The moment is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com slash hiring. Monster. Find better. It just sounds better with a Boston accent somehow. And by Amazon. Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the great best-selling novels by Michael Connolly. Stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. And one more bit of business. Slate will be recording live shows up and down the East Coast this spring. Catch the Culture Gab Fest live in Manhattan. Hank, I've been in D.C., and the Pickle Gab Fest in Atlanta. For more information on these shows, visit slate.com slash live. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a special treat for me. Uh, Gabrielle Hamilton is here, and uh, she's a master at two things I care a lot about writing, and cooking. I mean, I care about the eating part, but in order for the eating part to be awesome, the the cooking part needs to be great. She's an extraordinarily successful chef, restaurateur, and um, wrote one of my favorite memoirs, certainly like one of the best ones I've read in the last 10 years, Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef. Her restaurant, Prune. If you come to New York, make a reservation in advance. You can go for brunch if you want. She fucking hates brunch, but feel free.
1: It's oh, in your book. It's frere. in your. It's
0: in your book.
1: I love brunch. It's my favorite service.
0: Oh, she's a liar. Also,
1: no, no, no. I feel like when you get on that egg station, you've arrived.
0: <laughs> Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, um you, I was when I was reading your book. Um, I saw the name of somebody who I love, uh, Elwood Reed. Oh, you're
1: <laughs> kidding!
0: No, he's my good buddy. Oh. So I called Elwood this morning. <laughs> uh-huh. And he and I had talked, about, like, years ago when I read the book, we had talked, but I, I called him this morning. And he, he first wanted me to say that his offer uh, to kill a big animal and bring it for you stands. Nice. So if you want him to, he'll be listening. So if you want him to do it, tell him he's ready to come. But he also said, you know, you guys went to grad-
1: Elwood Reed, who was a football player or a former football player at U of M, right? And then he ends up in the writing program. <laughs> and and, you, and is damned good at it and, and
0: you, who came whos yeah was a showrunner and writer and wrote an incredible book, a short story it's called "What Salmon Know um, and a novel called if i don't six that 's also worth oh right reading and, and Elwood said this too he said, you know Gabby, Gabrielle and I were the only People there who sort of
1: had a life outside of the program, <laughs> <laughs> or, or in a way, I don't mean that, but like we're living a life that had some material in it already. What did he say? <laughs> I just want to know.
0: Well, you write about it, and how you had had lived a life that m- made being there—you thought it would be a kind of, like perhaps a kind of salvation, right? You were able to, to leave the life you were living before to go there, and then the 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 sort of privilege <laughs> and not just the navel-gazing, but the sort of um, assumptions about what mattered that a lot of the people had were so different from the assumptions that you had about what mattered if you wanted to do something meaningful creatively.
1: Yeah, it was too rarefied for me, and um, it felt like a lot of style and not a lot of substance. And um, I was grateful to go learn some style and architecture to add to what I think I already had as substance.
0: Yeah, substance seems like it's really... Important to you in all these different like <laughs> well, yeah. areas. I mean, because you know, I watched your season of oh, Mind of a Chef. Mind of a Chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, you started what the third season of that show, I think, or the I'm second? the I'm season four. Season four, and um, and it's clear that, or it seems, and tell me that it's true that you're you're still on the search for like the essential. I don't
1: like the debris. I don't like the um, the. Stuff that's on the plate that doesn't matter, the stuff that's on the page that's not um, really important, not important, but that doesn't add, that distracts.
0: But sometimes the distracting stuff can appear pretty or can appear,
1: I'm Yeah, it's but hard it's, to
0: figure that, I'm saying it's, it's hard to root that stuff out, isn't it?
1: The difference between what is essential and beautiful versus what is uh, beautiful but not pertinent. Yeah. I'm getting better at, that, at making that call. What I wonder about, I guess... What are we talking about? I've lost... What specifically are we
0: speaking about? I think here's what we're speaking about. We're speaking about this bullshit meter that you seem to have. Mm. And I guess I wondered from reading your book and all the rest of it, whether it's ever fucking painful to go through life that way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's painful to go through life in any way, but um, is it painful to have a bullshit meter? To sort of recognize um,
0: the inauthentic all the time and to ha- and to recognize the inauthentic, and to be bothered by it. Mm. Because I think for writers, that's often really difficult.
1: I think that's the project of my life now. I have become 50. I'm <laughs> 50 years old. And you have that pretty stark revelation that the longer road is behind you and the shorter is in front of you, and you want to take some deep evaluation of how you spend your time. And I don't want to hear myself any longer... Um, Exasperated, or um, indignant, or um, spending much time worried about what other people are doing, or how they do it, or whether they're authentic or not authentic. I think it's just extra time to put my own head down and do my own freaking work.
0: I think that that's true. I'm about to turn fifty and thinking about a lot of the same about a lot of the same stuff. Which is like, how do you how do you eliminate just like the things that are re- reflexive tics that we. Yeah. that we have. Yeah. Which is like, that's why I say the way we react to stuff coming at us, you can fall into these patterns. And I don't know, I, you know, I, in watching Mind of the Chef, I, I, you know, I loved on that one episode where you talked about how irony is sort of like an, an enemy. You said like, um, people now will present something in an ironic way that, um, with quotes around it almost. You know, someone could make sardines on, t- could put the sardines out in a way that they're Quoting or referencing.
1: It was about, I think, um, going back to some um, authentic craftsmanship, some authentic artisanality. Yes. um, But with a kind of quotation marks, like, wouldn't it be so cool if we, like, did silver service or had really good waiters (laughs) in this kind of um, ironic, aren't we the coolest thing to have um, to reclaim and represent old school excellence? Yes. the The trouble I get into uh, all the time when I find myself in the most trouble is when I'm um, concerning myself with what other people are doing and how they're doing it, and it's a it's a, a waste of time and energy, and it's not kind, and it doesn't uh, lead the path. It doesn't uh, um, unless it helps shine the light on what you think the world should be or could be, and <laughs> unless
0: it helps you figure out what you want to do.
1: Right, where you have negative inspiration, where you see something happening and uh, you realize that's not what you want to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think I also get very in trouble when I feel defensive, when whatever it is that I'm doing feels um, obsolete or uncool or not what's in demand or um, so that it that... needs to be defended or protected as if uh, it were about to be extinct.
0: I mean, we all get—I mean, we we all get— um really worried about that, I think. So what do you do to, how do you make yourself, like, what's your practice that allows you to recenter and remember why you have your, the priorities or what they are? Mm, how do you do it?
1: I don't know. I think it's pretty built in now. I think it's pretty internal. Because you're so consistent. I mean, you are as so as consistent. As I feel myself getting nervous about something or hear, if I hear my voice go up an octave or two and I, or I'm, um... Asking someone to see what I see, where you end a question with a kind of interrogative, like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Because you're trying to beg the person to see it the way you see it. I, that's Those are some of the signals to my own self where I'm like, mm, I think you're in trouble here. What are, you, what are you doing? Why do you need this person to collaborate with you on what you see? And why do you need to be so persuasive about it? You, Gabrielle, why are you... Um, proselytizing your point of view. So that's always a sign where, what are you defending, G.H.? What are you defending? And then I take a look. It's like, oh, maybe I'm afraid I'm not a good enough chef, or I don't mean anything, or I'm... um
0: How do you ask yourself those questions? Do you write stuff? Do you journal every day?
1: No. Oh, my God. That would be so great. (laughs) No, I'm desperate to get to the page. I haven't um, put any words on a page in so long. (laughs) But um, how do you do that? I mean, I think I did a lot of this stuff a very long time ago where the one thing that I did that I think has lasted me some 25 years, the greatest thing I ever did, was to lie down under the dead weight of the revelation or realization of my own lack of talent. And I don't mean that—I won't say this in false self-deprecation any more than I can bear false aggrandizement. Like, if I I took a very critical, objective, and real assessment of what my skills are and what they are not, what my talent can, will, or won't ever be— And, you know, I think we all want to be better than we are and we all think we're more special or wish we were more special than we are. And I think the greatest thing I ever did was to sort of Oof suffer <laughs> the freaking disappointment of um an honest self assessment. Self knowledge. Yeah, I'm pretty good here and I'm not so great there and I'm also good over here, but not so great and here. Did and, you then
0: decide to accept
1: like so and then you, then you just sort of that. walk through the world um almost unassailable in a way unless um you don't have to pump yourself up or fake other people out or be anything other than you actually are and it's quite a relief
0: alright we're going to take a sec here to uh, hear from our sponsor as a small business owner you work endless hours to pursue your goals the sunrise is your alarm clock your lunch hour is eight minutes long you need employees that work hard too Monster has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right jobs Monster builds custom hiring solutions specific to your small business visit monster.com slash hiring for a limited time offer and to find employees who work as hard as you. Monster. Find better. Do you think that you, the, the, the way that you had to be on your own at various times of, of your life from childhood on made you have to have, like, a, a cold, clear eye toward those you loved and, and, you, and yourself in order to, to go, like, okay, these are deep flaws. Can I still love anyway?
1: Well, that's the big question. It's not that there are flaws in yourself or others. It's how
0: will you suffer them. And choosing whether... I mean, is it also choosing whether to?
1: Well, it depends on how... um, What kind of impact or abrasion their flaw or that flaw has on you. Some are... um, Oh, it's a charming flaw. <laughs> just let's move along with that one. We're just fine yeah. here and the others are like, "You know what? I just won't be able to make it um with you or with this job or this boss or this lover if this is what we're up against."
0: When when you when you make this kind of um like as you said, you, li- you know, you lie down under this, you accept w- what you are. One one might think that that kind of involves a surrender. It, it does, but the other thing that serious really marks your Twin careers is an incredible work ethic. So it's almost like you did that, and then you decided. Or I wonder, did you then say like, okay, these are my limitations, but oh, okay. So
1: <laughs> I, I I would love to talk about um, doing the work, and I'm the actual work. And I don't know if we're talking about self knowledge work or cooking work or cleaning work, but I think they can all however you define be it.
0: Please talk about same it. Same with the
1: writing work. Um, You have to actually do, can I swear on this thing? Fuck yeah. You have to do the fucking work. And you can't phone it in or pretend or read your daily inspiration book that tells you you're just so great however you are or life is hard but it gets better at the end. Like I'm mocking this stuff because I feel very (laughs) almost violent about it that, um, yeah, you got to do the work, the actual bloody, ugly, difficult Humiliating work, but then only then can you emerge pretty clean.
0: And when you when you got to this point where you took that kind of inventory or decided what you were, and you set off on whatever the goal was, did you know? Okay, this is gonna. I'm going <laughs> This if is going a goal? <laughs> well, well, was there was no. there any kind of goal? Zero goal.
1: <laughs> it's all like getting a tattoo. <laughs> every single choice. Every. Endeavor, it's all like, well, I like the way this looks, feels good now for the moment. This will hopefully lead. If I feel good now, whatever the hell the thing I'm doing is, like this tattoo looks good, it's going to be here forever. Um, hopefully, the pleasure it brought in the moment has a residual, ongoing, I, it can never be taken away.
0: <laughs> I, I, so I get that, I, as an, as a, like, like um, no regret, and, <laughs> sure, as an ideology, for, but. Like, there are parts of your life that clearly that was the case, but then you've kept the restaurant for the whole time. You have your kids. There are these things that you don't treat as though they're... Um, oh, yeah. Um, spontaneous decisions. Yeah. Like, oh, yes, yeah, so a tattoo stays on, and so it's per- there's a permanence to it, but your interaction with it is over, in a way, after you get the tattoo, right? The active thing. Yeah. But, it seems from the outside like you you are able to say, oh well, but I've actually taken on responsibility here also.
1: Huge. There are certain things that have a is that called sacrosanct that are kind of inviolable. The when I when I started the restaurant, uh, I really committed to it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing and I agreed to do the restaurant sort of on a whim in the same way, you know, you get a tattoo when you're drunk practically. Um but once i woke up and had the tattoo <laughs> once i sobered up and had it um i felt like i was married to it and i take that shit pretty seriously
0: i guess i find it so amazing like i came from two parents who were really consistent and loving and took uh put <laughs> put my sisters and and me always considered us a priority
1: wow <laughs> and so,
0: and I think that your like, midlife is going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah, no crisis coming for you. <laughs> and so it's been that blessing, that thing made up for sort of any other fucked up stuff that might yeah. have gone on. God, what's their phone number? But I, I look at, at at someone with your background, and, and and let's talk about it a little. Like how you were, were you thirteen when you were first like left alone for a summer or something like yeah. that. Can you talk about what? Tell me about that. Like what happened? How? What your life was like then?
1: Yeah, I think um, this is why I really want to write another book, because I had to only roll out an aspect of what it was like to grow up in my childhood and have my abbreviated childhood. And it's so much more nuanced and I'd love to sort of go back at it in an almost forensic way. Um, How did I... Okay, what's the really? I, I just got off the question, didn't I? What was it like? No,
0: no, we want... Um, by the way, I want... I mean, we want to read that for... I'll say that it's all implied in the book. That's
1: right. It's implied,
0: but it's also sort of elited
1: it's uh, there's so much that could not be said and people get reduced situations get reduced to sort of their most um, either romantic and delicious or beautiful or poignant or crushing or Their highest, saltiest peak moment.
0: Yeah, also... Because because when
1: you're looking at it and you're like, okay, I have exactly four pages to cover this material, and let's jettison all the sort of mitigating crap. Because the fear
0: is... What you sucked out of the book, what's there that's only implied is the fucking fear. Because the book in each of these things is about your survival of these things, by definition.
1: And it makes me uncomfortable in post-book world to have these interviews where people are like, how did you survive? And I actually have asked myself this question at certain times. Like there were some, frankly, easily fatal, easily and egregiously unchaperoned, um, dangerous, self-destructive and externally destructive long periods in my uh, very young adulthood and childhood. However... There was also all of the things that I think you also read in the book. You know, there was the Mercedes Benz and the sitting on the lap of the mother and the delicious meals yeah, the and the trips to France yeah. and the fun ski trip to Vermont and every all the kids sleeping in the hotel would have maple syrup on the snow in the morning. So yeah. I think you know these things can be confusing they to can, an adult mind,
0: let alone a young mind. And but as a kid, because I'm, I'm you know, people. So many of us, as I said, because I had a good childhood, but still, um, so many of us, uh, those moments haunt us. The those difficult times, right? They sure
1: do, and they they were, in fact, traumatic. Whether I'm a pussy or extra sensitive, or I don't really know, but I'll tell you, they were (laughs) clearly lowercase t, traumatizing in a certain way if I'm still thinking about them and living my life in reaction to them. So wow. <laughs> creating um, the way I parent is obviously very different than the way I was parented. I actually parent. You're not going to leave <laughs> them for the summer? <laughs> to... <laughs> and, um, but, I, you know, it is so interesting to be a parent and watch your own children as they pass through the ages where you were when these things Happened to you. And (laughs) frankly, I'm even more shocked as I get older, as I'm watching my own kids. I'm like, oh, my God, that's what a nine-year-old looks like.
0: What was your your real, though, level of, because I guess I'm trying to figure out like um, another thing that that one would say about you or the people say about you is like your incredible, um, your competence. And this isn't, there's no smoke blowing here, right? You're competent. You take something on and you're like. Oh, I have these this set of skills. I can apply them with rigor, and I can achieve what I have to achieve. Like many people who had the experiences you had, they would have given up or they would have fucked it off. Like huh. you, you, because right later in life, you've I mean, you've hired people who've given you the excuses. I'm sure.
1: I see. Yeah, there's an. Ex- I have a, some extraordinary or uncommon capability. There's a.
0: How did you realize it?
1: Uh, I think having gotten out of very difficult, various situations um, on my own, even if it's as things like lifting things that were unliftable, I would lift them, or <laughs> I would figure out a way to lift the stand mixer. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think what we're really talking about, like. Get yourself home from a place that you don't know where you are and you don't have any direction and you have to get home. What are you going to do, like, sit down and die on the sidewalk? No, you got to, like, figure it out eventually. Or finding yourself in a physical outmatched physically to some project like hiking on a mountain cliff and about to roll down into the deadly water but you're going to find that little branch and hold on to it and get yourself back up but i guess or, is that
0: confi- that question i guess what people are you know i can picture people listening who have a hard time accessing the confidence. So, like <laughs> I, to... I don't
1: think I have any confidence, but I think I have an extraordinary drive toward life. I freaking love living. I can't imagine any better job to be given on the planet than to be alive and all that there is here to see and smell and experience and know, no matter its gruesomeness or its exquisiteness I I just want to be here you want to be inside the very it. end that's right <laughs> was that hard
0: was that hardwired in you do you think no, is no, that no. always
1: how you were? I think I had a, a ex- very dark uh, suicidal or parasuicidal period as a 18 19. 20 year old, I really wanted to get off the freaking planet. And I couldn't figure out a way to die or kill myself because I'm also very well bred and polite. And I have a giant sense of civic obligation and uh, how we all tie into a social fabric. And I couldn't um, fathom letting the mailman find me. I couldn't tolerate what it would Feel like to the other waitresses at my restaurant job to hear that I'd offed myself. I couldn't, um, I couldn't transgress in that way, especially because I was a perfectly physically healthy human. I also couldn't bear the idea that there are a lot of people who are not uh, blessed with good health who are gonna die at a young age, and it felt like incredible hubris. So. It's a confusing. I really felt um, despairing in the most um, egregious way. Um, and how'd you turn it around? I started to um, try to kill myself and did some really quasi-suicidal things, and maybe like went off the freaking deep end in an episode. And when I came back, I was like, "That's enough of that, young lady. Like, get your fucking shit together. You're glad you're here, and from now on." You walk on the sunny side of the street, and I made a mental shift. I I understood that there would be no purpose. I know we're all going to die. I know all the existential. There is no meaning, and um, I just also felt like, well, you're here, so enjoy yourself, you
0: dumbass. Well, that this now explains the loathing of ironic detachment, because, oh. <laughs> right? Because you, it, it, it's almost like you had to work so hard to be present and accept it and live in it that the sort of people who can, or, or there's the, forget the people who can
1: sort it? of exhale yeah. on the end of their camel filterless cigarette and be like, oh, baby, come on. It's all the same fucking day. The very, yeah. very unfaithful. or <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was pretty badass. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> I, right.
0: I saw her once in concert. It was
1: <laughs> Wasn't that all of our role models <laughs> when we were <laughs> younger? And then in the end, it just really doesn't really serve me. It only keeps you apart and isolated and alienated from. All that is here.
0: And does that influence the way in which you cook, too? Hmm. <laughs> it, I mean, does the... that with the dishes that you decide to present and the sort of unchanging nature of it. Not that you don't change your menu ever, but that... Right, the voice stays the same. That you are doing a certain thing and you're going to keep doing it and keep trying to do it excellently. I mean,
1: I think the the thing about food, frankly... I think the reason I often get defensive or feel like a colossal failure in this department is that I'm not really very interested in food. I don't like to talk about it. I don't have a philosophy about it. It's too giant a word for me to load up on. I have, I'm i a little bit pragmatic about it. I just love to eat, and I like to eat exactly what I want when I want it, and I like to cook the food the way I like to eat it. So it's not... Um, Conceptual. I, I'm afraid I don't have a con- concept. I just am hungry <laughs> and I cook the food that I want to eat. You know, it's not and that. And I really, and I have huge opinions about it and I'm not afraid to share them. And I think you're going to want to eat what I want to eat too. And so I just open a restaurant and make it the way I think hopefully some people will also enjoy. It, and that's it turns really, out that they do. That's really
0: interesting because there are these, there are, I was thinking about this as you were walking over here. Um, Like, David Chang... Delicious food. Right. And uh, Mario, too. (laughs) Delicious food. And uh, Bourdain. Those guys, and you, are all actual intellectuals. Oh. You're actual... It's a weird thing. It's not just smart. Like, chefs have been smart for a long time, restaurateurs. But those four people, you, Bourdain, Chang, and Mario, are all actual intellectuals.
1: I will come back any time if it's going to be like this.
0: (laughs) But but then you ask Chang. I've known him for a long time, too. And... He means it like, I just want to make fucking delicious food. I mean, yeah. you said the word delicious, right? He's just like, I just want to make delicious food. I don't want uh, to think about it philosophically. But I also have to say, I think you exert such precision and control over what you present that it can't just... And, and, and decided to do a very specific... You decided to do a very specific kind of thing well, without a, without artifice. But I'm going to go
1: back to the work ethic, because I think the only thing that I exercise precision and control over is the execution of the thing in a correct way and a not sloppy or lazy or yeah. short-cutting way. And it's a tedium, frankly, of my... The bulk of my work is, hi, could you please wash your hands? hey, young cook, that's the wrong tool for the job. It's hardly, God, I'm going to go in the lab and figure out what would happen if I smoke my mayonnaise. It's not where I'm prone to think um, or spend my energy. I'm all, I'm like the freaking sheepdog all day long, just making sure that we're working to a standard that we can all feel really proud about and go to sleep well having executed our workday. I feel the same way in writing. It's... Um, uh, it requires a kind of discipline, but you have to have, I don't know, think I'm an intellect, I think I'm educated. I went, I had a liberal arts education, I've read the canon, and I have engaged with all the material, from Socratic <laughs> thinking to um, Patti Smith. I mean, I'll just, from, I, I read the books, and I see what's going on on the page. And I... And then think about do it. do my best at all times to follow... The work ethic of what it is to write well. I mean, it's so funny. I just taught a class, a writing class in Canada, and the only we didn't have much time. It was two weeks, and I and only saw them for a few hours. You Have to get through
0: all the Roberts and Davies.
1: And I didn't do. I just said, okay. Do you, we all know the greatest you know six word novel ever written? And I gave them the Hemingway baby yeah, shoes, baby shoes yeah. for sale, never worn, and. In fact, then we went on to Mario Batali. I was like, okay, do you want to have a memoir? The best six-word memoir. Do you know Batali's six-word memoir? It's incredible. Two sentences with six words. Brought it to the boil. Often. And I just think that's so good. So that's, for me, those two people, Hemingway and Mario Batali, I love putting them in the same breath, and I hope he'll admire that I'm doing this too or be pleased. But there's some rigor and discipline and um, education there. This is how a sentence is written, and what you omit, what you
0: delete, the words you choose matter. That makes sense to you in, in when you're talking about writing, but then when, when you're talking it's about... same in cooking. Yep, yeah, right, but when you're talking about don't food, you say saying you don't... Don't shit on
1: the plate. It has nothing to do with this paragraph. Get it out of here. And I don't believe in kill your darlings. I don't like that phrase. It's so mean and manly <laughs> and i'm female and maternal and i'm i would never kill my darlings but i would definitely get them out of harm's way and put them in the right location. So you got to definitely kill your darlings in this piece. Like this sentence doesn't belong here. This piece of garnish is wrong. We're going to mix the metaphors here between cooking and writing, but um,
0: yeah. But so you just, but yeah. I just
1: find a better home for them. They are darling or they are good. That is a good phrase, but get it out of this paragraph. It doesn't belong here. Or it's calling too much attention to you, the writer, and you're the way you're charming yourself with your own. Um, Ooh, look at these words I picked out. You can just feel when the writer is admiring their own work on the page, and I loathe it. I I, I close the book. I'm like I'm not reading well, your work it's anymore. Well, the thing we
0: all, as writers, we try desperately to avoid, and we all fall. To it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. And you can't help it. But I feel like that's part of what you should do when you're writing. You get up from the desk, you do a little victory lap around the living room. You're like, ho, oh, oh, check me out. Oh, that is some good writing. And then go and get it off the page and don't let anyone ever see it. <laughs> it takes me 24 hours.
0: I have a 24. I, I will tell you, you cannot say a fucking word about it. a scene that I write for 24 hours. Not a word. It's fucking perfect. And then, like, around 36 hours, I'll look at it and I'll go, oh, fuck, there's only one sentence that's useful. Right. I can only use one of these sentences. But for 24 hours, I will have really thought like I had done it, basically.
1: Well, there's your problem with the, like, I don't care about the medium of blogging or the worldwide wonderful internet. It's that it's so instant that you don't have time to, people don't take the time, it
0: seems to me, to sort of, hi,
1: why don't you sit on that a minute and...
0: I just want to back up, though, because... um, so I said the thing about intellectual and philosophy, and then you said, oh, I'm not intellectual. I don't have a philosophy about, about food. And then everything you said right after that proved that you were an intellectual with a huge <laughs> philosophy about food. And, and so I, I just what, – what, what's scary about accepting – what's scary that's about saying, question. like, I am a badass? No, no, no.
1: I think that's such a great question. I think that what's scary is um, you and I probably have both read The Great Thinker's. And I think you and I also both know that the standards, what's considered an educated person now is (laughs) colossally diminished of what it means to be a person with a liberal arts education. I'm just saying the classical ideal of to be an educated person, what we are now, I, I
0: just don't want to... Um, but if your standards are that, uh, if that you, high, if or, how can you... It's one thing to say I'm going to take a realistic look at myself, but it's another thing... Like Obviously, since you were a very young person, you had to know that you're an exceptionally bright person, for instance.
1: I would say I'm bright.
0: Yeah and the only reason you might not acknowledge exceptionally bright is you working. might point to just like one or two <laughs> bright and, and hard working and that's half the battle right there that's a a huge a huge piece of the battle it almost
1: i mean people talk about that all the time the talent that um, the person doesn't apply themselves to and Conversely, the person who just applies himself and applies himself but doesn't quite have
0: the but but the you know spark. even in, even in Emerson's essays right he he's looking then and we would certainly look at Emerson as someone who uh, had the I mean Emerson and his contemporaries as being um, much more actively engaged in learning all the time but even in his essays he's like you know we're a pale we have to grab it now and how come the greats created before us and we better be the greats and do it and I think in your time like you can never feel like uh, as though. Because the stuff from 100 years ago has been culled already for us. Well,
1: that's so fun and so uh, not fun at the same time. You know when you have a big thought? (laughs) You have a pretty big good one, and you're like, God, that's, yeah, okay, I'm interested in this thought. And then it turns out you go find that it was thought by someone else greater than you a long time ago. So don't you have that sort of mixed emotion of God damn it. <laughs> well... I've already... This has already happened. But also, conversely, like, oh, I'm benchmarking here. This is awesome. This is just
0: what the... But but <laughs> but his... Whatever. I mean, his point was like, no, you have to just... If you have the secret thought that you think is the thing, you have to say it and not... You, you have know, to publish. You have to... Yeah, you gotta...
1: I don't mean publish um, literally. I just mean you have to extrovert.
0: Yeah. Well, my, yeah, Seth Godin who's, who talks about you gotta um, ship it. You know, you yeah. have to actually... <laughs> <laughs> you have to actually do the thing somehow, which is... Uh, right, that's the work ethic, I think. All right, we're going to take a quick break and return with more uh, for more conversation with Gabrielle Hamilton after this quick word from our sponsor. Amazon's original series, Bosch, returns for an all-new season. Based on Michael Connolly's best-selling novels, Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet, as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video, and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. Are you aware, like, you talk about the way that um, your mom, there are certain dishes your mom made, and... They've stayed with you, the the way in which they were delicious and amazing has stayed with you. Are you aware that you're unconscious of trying to create that experience for people? Like, when I said I was going to talk to you, my son grew up in the city, but only... I think he's only been to Prune a couple times in his life. He was like, chanterelles on toast. Mm. How did she come... Like, how? Where mm-hmm. did that come from? And Elwood said, um sardines and triscuits and radishes. Like, people talk about these very simple dishes of yours the way I might talk about the third track on Lou Reed's New York album. (laughs) You know, I might be like, Romeo had Juliet. Like, how did, like, um, which is just three quarters. I
1: know. It's so funny. How does that happen? There are certain things that have a resonance greater than the item itself. I know that canned sardines thing, who knew? But a lot of people have sardine nostalgia. You, put, you open a can of sardines at Prune, I did, in 1999, and people are coming up to the path like, can I tell you, I used to sit on my father's lap every Sunday. We would eat the sardines, do the crossword puzzle. Well, um, El- Elwood and-
0: said she gave me permission. Elwood said, and, you know, um, talk about a bullshit detector. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, Gabriel gave me permission to eat that way without embarrassment again. He said, I was embarrassed at college that I wanted to eat sardines because it was like white trash food to me, he thought. He's like, I thought, it, and he goes, and radishes and butter. I thought that was white trash food. And somehow Gabrielle like reclaimed that for us and repositioned it. And so that's why I ask you if there is some sort of mission or philosophy because the result is as though there is, right? So the result is as though you had an entire mission that you had a a mission about redefining or staking a claim that a certain thing should be considered in a certain way.
1: I think it's one of the hardest things to do is to present the experience that you had translated onto a plate when you can't, I can't bring everything with it. So I can pretty much make you um, a very good Negroni. It's a, the closest rendition as i can possibly give you as the one that i've drunk or had in the square in rome for the past 14 years you know i'm freaking out right now that you brought up negroni to you, i can't also bring to you the whole feeling of what it's like to be standing on cobblestone that is centuries millennia old i can't translate into this one goddamn poor little cup of alcohol what it's like to hear the Vespas zing by and to see the kids playing soccer and the fountain going and that sort of orange color of the wash of the buildings there surrounding you. So I can't bring the whole thing to you in this one little glass of liquor. But I'm doing my best. So I'm doing as close a rendition as I can. In the same way, I'm going to open the can of sardines and put the triscuits on. I never would have garnished with a sprig of parsley when you're standing in your own kitchen in your socks, you know, eating out of the pantry. So you do your best to approximate the experience.
0: Well, I think in the writing, it is the same. Like when you talked about that, those four, you know, you have four pages to do 13 to 16, right? The the summer you're left alone before until you come to New York, you have whatever limited amount of time you are still trying i think as an artist and i think you succeeded in the first in that book in uh, letting us feel what's around the edges
1: that's the um it. i mean the driving it's the only thing i want to do in writing is get you where i was or where i am it's the if i can just describe it so accurately so that you feel like you know it and are there too i can I feel like I've done my work. It's interesting.
0: I think before I watched Mind of a Chef, even having read the book, I, the image I carried around of who you were, at, at each of these stages, there then became sort of like um, a rigidity or like it was like this is the way the world is. I've now, I, you know, you your book features seismic changes that you made, but then, as you said, you're stuck into it kind of. You're like there, and then you're living that life, and then boom. But there's that great moment on one of the episodes this year uh, it's actually, I think, the same one where you talked about irony, where you're kind of railing against modern cooking techniques, and you're talking about the old risotto and Milanese or whatever. Why it's the it's so great, and you know, you you hold on that incredible uh, Milanese, you know, that comes with the risotto. And you're like, no one does it like this, and why is it so perfect and simple? And is this going away? And isn't it a tragedy if this disappears? And all that shit. And then the old Italian woman cooks a sous vide for you. <laughs> And it, it's great because it—it's what happens in the book—and you light up, <laughs> and you're just like, "Oh, I love this. This is great. <laughs> it's awesome." And I thought that showed like this great capacity to sort of, first of all, like mock your, like laugh at your own bullshit.
1: I love to take the stuff down in public, which, in fact, I, you know, have a healthy enjoyment of in private. I'm always like, if I ever use one of the, like, squar gum or whatever, I'm always joking, like, pull down the blinds at Prune. Don't let anyone see oh, yeah, it. actually xantham, tinkering right. with
0: xanthan gum. Xanthan gum is in that scene. <laughs> and you're like, uh, it's great watching you smile because you can tell she's – what I got from it was you, it was like – um she was still cooking with, like, love and honor and all that stuff and wanted to present you with something amazing. And you rolled with it. Or I did I did on camera. Oh, why? Did it disappoint you in real life?
1: Well, yeah, there were some things that I ate that were um, just not delicious. They were conceptually beautiful, and I understood the thinking process, and I admired the um, approach. And um, But the pudding wasn't good to my palate. I just like the stuff to taste actually good. And I, I realize that that's subjective, but I I don't think it is subjective. I think you're supposed to say it's subjective, but I feel like I can tell the difference between something very delicious and something not quite that delicious, but certainly beautiful on the plate.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't matter to you.
1: In fact, it doesn't. But there was actually some episodes that didn't make it that I we cut and I asked to be cut and they did where I was in sort of the house of the greatest chef and the concepts were giant and abundant and unbridled and actually didn't work technically. I I really had some just even intellectual criticism like, well, if you're going to use camouflage from the woods – on a fish, why don't we use the camouflage that a fish would use when you're going to decorate your plate? Sure. um, I think that's a pretty valid (laughs) critique. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and then when you tasted the product, it was like, this doesn't actually taste good. But the person making is like, this is delicious, delicious. And And so
0: what did you do in that spot?
1: uh, We cut the scene.
0: (laughs) What do you do when you go into a restaurant and you're, because of the way you experience all this stuff? Like, when you go to a restaurant and people recognize you, which chefs must do whenever you go into a restaurant or often when you go to a restaurant, and they present you with their thing and it's not amazing, what do you do?
1: Well, I try and take the work on its own terms. I don't need it to be what I would do or what I... I think I can recognize work on its own terms. So if someone's going to write gonna a modernist say, poem right. and I actually, you know, try to stay versed, in modernism, even if it's not my kind of cooking. So I, I think the surprise for many people to discover is I thought El Bulli was one of the single greatest dining experiences I've ever had in my life. I'm also sort of known as like, ah, oh, the fine dining, I just can't do the 400 tasting, the 400 item tasting menu anymore. And it's like, I will eat at Danielle <laughs> any day of the week. So my adherence is always to excellence and innovation and true authenticity—if that's um, that's redundant—but no, you mean authenticity no matter, without quotes around it. You no mean matter what idiom, I think so. That I loved Ferran. I think there's so much knockoff and imitation, and I, it it reeks. You can taste it on the plate. It's like you're not Ferran Adria, and you don't even know what you're quoting. And Let's go the opposite direction. Oh, is this a farm-to-table restaurant and you have a hearth and you have a rotisserie chicken? It's like, when did you ever see a hearth, frankly? (laughs) I just want to know what hearth you have any experience with. Because this reeks of um, pretension in another direction, or not pretension, but um, inauthenticity.
0: So right. I guess because, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because you oh, look at Dan Barber, he, and obviously Dan Barber has a re- everything that he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, everything, <laughs> like every single thing that happens from the moment you show up. He's for real. He's the real a, deal. There's a reason. That's right. That every single thing happens. Yeah, it was like when the pork bun explosion happened after Dave. You go like, wait, he did a thing that was very specific for a very clear reason. Each thing that was on that pork bun
1: was researched and calculated and understood and authentic. And it came from the font of his own (laughs) mind and gut.
0: He knew what he was quoting. He knew what he was um, recreating or creating. And, and, And in the same way, it seems from reading your book and eating in your restaurant that you know the thing that happened between you and your mom, the way she would cook for you, the way you grew up, just all those years later. Later, the echoes resulted in you understanding the effect you want this food to have on
1: people. Yeah, it's taken a long time to actually articulate it and um, stand by it. It was kind of I don't know. This is this is the way we do it. I just use the creuset pot and I like this wooden spoon. It was kind of um, unconscious. It was personal and ingrained, but unconscious. And now I have a much more articulated viewpoint about it, which is I really do want you to use this heavy-bottomed cruzet, and I really want you to use the wooden spoon. I don't want you to um, use the silicone rubber spatula, and I don't want you to use the Teflon pan, even though it's probably better or faster or more efficient. Um, I kind of now insist on the idiosyncrasies of the human in my restaurant because I do think that they they are part of the finished picture. There There's some um, humanity, and I will not, I'm not going to go down that path of, because we cook with love, because in fact we don't cook with love. We cook often with, you know, grinding molars and under intense conditions, and you're, have adrenaline pumping and this is not mama standing at the stove stirring, um, you know, whistling along with the classical music station. This is like I'm driving a fucking restaurant here, people, and we're line cooking. However, that doesn't mean we have to tong the shit out of the food. You can still use a spoon. You can still stir with a wooden spoon. We can use the right pot. We don't have to um, print the menu. We can handwrite the menu. We can have handwriting. We can... Anyway, so these sort of inefficiencies that well, I insist I, on because I think they add to the gestalt of the whole restaurant. Well
0: I wrote down and it, and it ties into the writing thing too and I know you said you're about to start a new book which is it, it does appear that and I'm so glad you said the thing about the love that it's not with love because I, I wrote down this idea that um, I don't, that control versus passion mm-hmm. is like this huge thematic question for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you found these two worlds to thrive in or these two mediums, because the worlds are bullshit, both the world of restaurants and the world of literature, like the most bullshitty-fit worlds. But you did find these two the, m- mediums that are all about uh, the ability to exert an incredible amount of control in order to produce a passionate reaction on the other side. And
1: so... It's, it's so funny, because the, if you think about it, as I am right now, they're so uncontrollable, both of those endeavors. Just from a cooking point of view, the freaking quantity of variables and vagaries in front of you each day from the climate to the product itself to the staff and equipment, all the things that break, the people who are a little mentally unstable who are going to cook the food, the perishability and difference in. Um, the ingredient from day to day. You know, you have a recipe that you think is so precise. It's You have to have this orange, and it sits for this many minutes in this much syrup with this density. And then, you know, you go back and do it on Thursday, and it's like, God damn, what's different about these oranges? Or Susie's having a bad day. <laughs> or, oh, my God, the burners are broken. And so these things, to try and exert control over a really wildly chaotic um, environment is kind of humorous. And same with writing. You know, you think you've got your story all mapped out. Oh, I know just what this is going to be. And then you start putting your pen to paper and you realize, oh, my God, I had no idea that's what was happening. And um, you know how writing is such an act of discovery of which you have no control over except to show up each day and do it. So I think the control comes in later when you um, you exert your discipline and your work ethic.
0: Well, because in both of these things, you don't have to present it until you're ready to present it. Right. In fact, shouldn't and can't. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, there's nothing like a deadline and a word count to really get you going, get your muse on. (laughs) Or, you know, people
0: sitting at a four top waiting. Yeah, right. Five (laughs) thirty reservation. But you'll throw it out before you'll serve it wrong, won't you?
1: No, I actually have a—well, in writing, I will. I can't bear— What
0: about at the restaurant? The
1: restaurant, I have a much um, broader threshold for. I see things that are like, it's not my favorite. Um, Like, that's a little brown, but send it out anyway. It's okay. We'll catch it on the next one. Because I think prune, you know, I I, I don't have any um, mistaking about what prune is and what prune was meant to be and what I want it to be. And when I eat at prune, I have flawed— food or I'll have a flaw in the experience. But what I almost always, in fact, I would say pretty much always have is in aggregate, my experience when I walk out the door is, God, I freaking love it there. So the soundtrack will be right. The way the um, girl at the door greeted me, The um, there'll be something very delicious. The cocktail was good. Um, there's, you know, and then you're like, oh, God, that monkey buster really messed up with the salt dish or, you know, but it's like, who, I mean, come on. I'm not, um, it's not the Last Supper. It's meant to be a useful, sturdy place that you can come to all the time and feel well and get most of what you need. (laughs) And you have to bring a little something to the party, too. Like, we are not your, um, your season tickets. Like, I bought my $100 ticket, and now I will sit here, and you will be my entire evening's entertainment and focus, I mean, we would crumble under that kind of scrutiny or expectation. You said it. We're a place. A place to go eat very delicious food and be well taken care of by generally not amateur people.
0: (laughs) The People who work there are pretty good. Well, all right, Gabrielle Hamilton, you're generally not an amateurish person. (laughs) That's been made really clear. Thank you for doing this. Uh, I can't wait to read your next book.
1: You and me both, thank you Write that fucking thing I'm on it, I'm on it
0: You're can find, are you not on social media or are you? I don't, I'm afraid Alright, you can't find her on social media So go to Prune, read yeah. her book, watch her on television And you can find her that way You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter Because um, I still need it Thanks Hi, I'm Carrie Russell.
1: I play the KGB spy Elizabeth Jennings on The Americans. It's more about getting people to trust you, to help them understand that you want the same thing that they want, which is to make the world a safer place for everyone.
0: Tune into The Americans' Insider Podcast each week after you watch the show for conversations with actors, producers, directors, and even an actual FBI counterintelligence agent. Search for The Americans Podcast from
1: Slate, wherever you get your podcasts.